Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The millions of us who are mostly staying home during this pandemic dream of the day we can roam free again. And the key to that may lie in new technology that puts health officials on the trail of infected people and their contacts, as David Pogue will report in our cover story. Contact tracing means tracking the spread of a disease from each person to everybody they've been in contact with. What we've been focusing on a lot in the United States is the care and treatment aspect. Almost no attention has been paid to the contact tracing piece. CEOs of Apple and Google released this joint logo. But thanks to a historic collaboration between tech giants Apple and Google, our phones will soon be able to do the contact tracing for us. Coming up on Sunday morning, how big tech may save a lot of lives. After which, we're in conversation. Aaron Moriarty talks with the stars of a new TV series depicting the long-fought battle over the Equal Rights Amendment. Why should women accept this picture of a half-life? Set in the 1970s, a new TV series returns to long hair, short skirts, and two very different women's movements. Women are not a monolith. They're all political persuasions, religious persuasions. Later on Sunday morning, the battle for equal rights. Then and now. We've been seeing a lot of people interviewed from their homes on TV these past few weeks, which prompts this Moraka background report. These are actually African heritage domes. He has really nailed it. With so many of us sheltering in place, the places where we shelter have become objects of fascination. We're in my office. Gaga looks like a chic loan officer. <laughs> Taking in the scenery ahead on Sunday morning. Ted Koppel asks if being behind bars right now is a death sentence. Jill Schlesinger surveys America's efforts to feed the hungry. Plus Tracy Smith on curb service. John Blackstone with Randy Newman, Jim Gaffigan, and more on this Sunday morning, the 19th of April, 2020. We'll be right back. Thanks to our cell phones, Public health officials could soon be on the trail of anyone who's been in contact with a person infected with the coronavirus. Our cover story is reported by David Pogue. When we talk about fighting the COVID-19 virus, we hear a lot about social distancing, self-isolation, and vaccines. What's weird is that you don't hear much about another incredibly important tool in fighting epidemics, contact tracing. It means detective work. When somebody tests positive, you ask for the names of anyone they've been in contact with recently. Well, contact tracing is really a fundamental part of managing infectious diseases that are contagious. Dr. Louise Ivers is a professor at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Center for Global Health at Massachusetts General Hospital. We try to find people who've been exposed to the illness, and then we give them instructions on what to do. Uh, that could be going to get a test. That could be self-isolating at home. We want to make sure that you don't inadvertently expose other people. Every day, I want you to write down who you've spent time with in person and where you've been. Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo has asked the entire population to keep a journal of the people and places they encounter. When you find out that you're positive, you should pull out your notebook and hand it over to the Department of Health so that they'll have accurate, up-to-date information. There's no nationwide tracking that's currently being done. And in Massachusetts, Governor Charlie Baker has hired a 1,000 contact tracers to interview people who've become infected. Partners in Health, a global health organization that ran a massive contact tracing effort in West Africa during the 2015 Ebola outbreak, is running the Massachusetts program. Everyone talks about flattening the curve. 
but we want to also shrink the curve, like shrink the total number of people that get sick. Dr. Joya Mukherjee is the chief medical officer of Partners in Health. She says that traditional contact tracing is more than just asking, who have you spent time with? It's also making sure you can handle being sick. So I say, Mr. Jones, you have the ability to quarantine. And he might say, uh, no, I am the prime breadwinner for this family. What am I going to do? Then we figure out, does he need unemployment insurance? Does he need food delivered to the house? That's all very cool, but we still have a big problem. You can't remember every single person you were near. Total strangers in the grocery store? Somebody behind you on the bus? The CEOs of Apple and Google released this joint logo. They are teaming up to create voluntary coronavirus tracing and tracking software. Well, if you've been watching the news, you know this next part. And then we came together and literally it was a mind meld. Dave Burke is the vice president of engineering for Android at Google. Almost too many people volunteering. Everybody want, you know, can't find anyone who doesn't want to help with the pandemic. And Bud Tribble is the vice president of software at Apple. Two tech titans launching a rare collaboration. To help Not only is it historic that these two huge tech rivals Apple are working together, are working it's also historic that they're appearing together on my screen and yours. The idea here that, that Google and Apple had, it wasn't new with us, was could we use mobile phones to help public health agencies do a better job to amplify their efforts on contact tracing? And, you know, it's actually a credit to the academic institutions, both in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia. There are a lot of researchers thinking through this problem. Okay, so what is this big project? It's a little technical, so let's take this slowly. You've heard of Bluetooth, right? It's a weak radio signal that lets your phone send music to wireless headphones or music to your car's stereo. Very soon, iPhones and Android phones will continuously broadcast a Bluetooth beacon, basically a big number that changes every few minutes, to any phones within about 15 feet. Meanwhile, of course, your phone is picking up the beacons from all other phones nearby. It remembers these interactions for 14 days. Now, here's the cool part. Suppose that a few days later, this guy tests positive for COVID-19. If he's willing, he can report his diagnosis in an app from a public health agency. At that point, everybody he's exposed in the last two weeks gets notified on their phones and advised to seek testing or quarantine. And to be clear, nobody has to participate if they don't want to. Is that right? It's under user control. They can turn it on or off. That is one of the principles that Google and Apple aligned on, like, you know, in the first five minutes, uh, maybe in the first five seconds. If somebody opts in, will their name ever be shared? No. Will their location ever be shared? No. Will the data collected ever be hackable or shared with the government or used for marketing? No. In fact, we've engineered the system so that the data doesn't go to a central place. You just know that you were close to somebody who was infected. That's it. South Korea and Singapore are doing digital tracing too, but far more invasively. They do link the infections to your identity. But MIT Internet Policy Professor Danny Weitzner says that the American approach, private and optional, will pay off. If we force people into this, they'll likely try to hide from it. And if everyone wraps their cell phone uh, in aluminum foil to try to prevent these signals from spreading around, um, then we would have failed. Google and Apple aren't writing the actual apps. Instead, they'll help state public health agencies create the apps, which should start arriving next month. One of the most amazing things about this collaboration is that it's Apple and Google. I mean, for many, many years, we thought of these two companies as smartphone arch rivals. It's very reassuring that we see the world the same way. Like, we see the potential for smartphones to help people. This historic collaboration between Apple and Google does face a few challenges. Maybe not enough people will choose to turn it on. Or maybe you'll get a notification, but you're actually fine. Or vice versa. And if you are notified, what then? Millions of people still can't get tested or can't afford to self-isolate.
But Dave Burke and Bud Tribble are optimistic. Um, this is just one action. And realistic. It's not a panacea. It's not the silver bullet. We have to do many different things in order to beat this pandemic. And as Harvard's Louise Ivers says, we have to try. This is the biggest public health emergency of our lifetimes. And we need to be ambitious about how we're going to get out of this because we cannot all stay home forever. Feeding America's hungry is no easy task during this time of disease and surging unemployment. Jill Schlesinger is watching our food banks rise to the challenge. From the streets of Southern California. The line for food was so long, there was a huge traffic jam. To the sidewalks of Maine. We've got sandwiches. The financial fallout from the pandemic crisis is triggering a hunger crisis. Sort of an all hands on deck situation right now. Food banks are struggling to find new ways to help record numbers of Americans who are out of work. Tell us about the types of people who are coming through the doors here at the food bank. Within the past month, we have seen an absolutely uptick of people that are now furloughed or unemployed. So that's a newer face that we're seeing at the food bank. Dr. Jessica Rosati is chief programs officer at Long Island Cares in New York, where they distribute food bag by bag, as well as delivery by delivery to seniors and others in need who can't leave their homes. In March alone, we distributed over a million pounds of food. And what was the prior month in terms of pounds of food? Maybe 600,000. According to Feeding America, the nation's largest hunger relief organization, before the virus outbreak, there were already 37 million people nationwide who didn't have enough to eat. That's expected to grow by an additional 17 million, an increase of 46 percent. At the Trinity Jubilee Center in Lewiston, Maine, they try to make sure every meal they hand out includes something hot. We're seeing folks who we can tell have never had to ask for food before. And second of all, people who were already struggling. Like single parents, parents working low-wage jobs, elderly people, disabled people. They used to be able to get food from different places in the community. And a lot of those soup kitchens and food pantries have shut down. So people are relying on us for even more food than before. Kennedy Jubilee Center. Aaron Reed is the executive director at the center. Donations are down as local colleges have closed and supermarkets have less surplus food. We've spent more on food in the past month than we have in the past six months combined. Down the street at the St. Mary's Nutrition Center, they were busy pre-packing bags of food. Social distancing means that recipients are no longer allowed inside to choose what they want. People are doing a lot, but it still never quite seems like enough. The crisis has touched everyone who works here, like Feaston Mobalama. My mother, she got laid off from work. And a lot of my friends, they got laid off from work. It's been hard. Across the country, in Southern California's Orange County, the Second Harvest Food Bank has started a drive through service on Saturdays. The first day was unbelievable. We literally got crushed. The surge of cars coming to the Honda Center, which is where we have our distribution, was something I've, I've never seen before. I, I... The CEO of Second Harvest, Harold Herman, says they've overhauled their procedures to ensure they're not spreading the virus. The rest of you split up. They had to reduce the number of people working in their warehouses. We've relied on volunteers for 37 years, and we have as many as 26,000 of them come through our doors on an annual basis. But overnight had to basically turn that tap of resources off and figure out a way to, to work the food ourselves to be able to harden our defense. In place of volunteers, they've hired 120 people who have recently lost their jobs. Like musician Tim Gill. The industry evaporated. Concert tours canceled, studio dates canceled. Within the span of just a few days, it went from a full calendar of work to nothing at all. Along with a paycheck comes a box of food. We 
just have so much less income that we need this basic assistance, you know. And it's invaluable to know that we have these resources that we're not going to be going hungry. Feeding America says 95% of food banks in the country are seeing higher demand and higher expenses. Over the next six months, it will take an estimated billion and a half dollars, or 30% more money than they've been spending, to meet that need. This food bank cannot close. There are hundreds of thousands of people right now counting on us. And it's not just the food, it's that little bit of hope that comes with that box as well. That normalcy, that someone actually is out there looking out for you during a time that has a lot of people really uncertain. The fight against the coronavirus is taking that ubiquitous American innovation, the drive-through, to a whole new level, as Tracy Smith now shows us. All over the country, parking lots have become doctor's offices, and every car is a little waiting room. And the key word is waiting. Here in California, drivers spend as much as six hours in line to get to the big tent where they crack open the window just enough for a nasal swab or a needle stick and then drive off to wait some more for the results. So people queue up hours before we open. Dr. Matthew Avenante says the process is slow, but there's no better way. So the drive through is the only answer? In my opinion, it is. It is. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Urgent cares are overwhelmed. Doctors' offices are overwhelmed. They're trying to develop home kits, but it's just not fast enough. A drive-through, fast-food style setup is just the way we probably have to go. Seems now the drive-through, that symbol of American excess and maybe even laziness, is finally getting a little respect. These days, when you have to wear a mask just to go out in public, a drive-through testing facility seems to make a lot of sense. And that's especially true in this country, where you can drive through to get just about anything. Today, Americans want it all, they want it now, and they don't want to get out of their cars to get it. A few years back, our dear friend Bill Geist found drive-through weddings. Do you take this woman's hand? Drive-through funerals and more, so much more. Here's one a lot of people can't even believe. Can I help you? Uh, bourbon and water and a martini straight up with a twist. It seems that there's no business that can't be done out of a drive-up window. Martini straight up. Thanks very much. Yeah, have a good day. I've seen drive-through confessions for churches, drive-through animal adoption centers. Um, everyone is kind of adopting this model to, uh, to make businesses go. Adam Chandler is the author of Drive-Through Dreams. It doesn't exist as a culture, drive-throughs and fast food, the way it does here anywhere else in the world. The drive-through is uniquely American. Yes, yes. Uh, it exists in other places, but not with the same special flavor, I guess. And that flavor sells. According to a recent study, fast food restaurants take in about 70% of their income through that little window. And now the pandemic has made it the only game in town. drive throughs are how hospital workers and truckers and families are getting fed right now. And so it's actually how the, comp how the country is continuing to move. And that's, that's important to note, too. But whether you're selling burgers or booze or Band-Aids, working a drive through is a tough business, especially when the cars won't stop coming. Dr. Abenante. What has this been like for you? This has been really hard for me. Uh, my family's moved out, and I have four kids. They, they moved to my, my in-laws, and uh, I get to see them tomorrow, which is really exciting. I mean, you are on the front line, so you felt like you had to isolate yourself, essentially. I felt like that was best, and my wife also. She was very worried about the disease. My family motivates me. And um, when I think about the world being locked up and me away from my family. It's, it's isolating. It's, uh, you feel alone. But for now, it seems the best way forward may be to stay isolated and just drive through.
Is this, in some cases, a matter of life and death? In some ways, yes. But if we prevent one case, then we can prevent three from that person, and three from that person, it's exponential. And so I do feel like uh, we're able to make a huge difference and save lives. For those behind bars during the coronavirus emergency, social distancing is all but impossible. So what does that mean, both for those inside a jail or prison and for those of us outside the walls? Here's our senior contributor, Ted Koppel. The notion that society is best served by taking people who break the law and locking them up for a long time that notion has always had a powerful constituency in this country. That's why on a per capita basis, the United States has more people behind bars, 2.3 million, than any other country in the world. And a lot of the sentences are insanely long. I was sentenced to 1,010 years and 19 life terms for armed bank robbery. I won't go up for parole until Jesus come back first. That's our starting point. There's no such thing as a good time to be an inmate in the U.S. prison system or, for that matter, to be awaiting trial in a county jail. It may also be that there's never been a worse time. Rikers Island in New York City's East River currently holds more than 4,000 prisoners. It is a toxic breeding ground for COVID-19. Throughout all of the city's prisons and jails, the number of inmates and staff testing positive has now topped 1,000. Keep in mind that Rikers, by far the largest of them all, is a jail, not a prison. What I know from being incarcerated is that People in American prisons and jails have very little prospect at avoiding infection. Piper Kerman spent more than a year behind bars. Her memoir was adapted into the hit series, Orange is the New Black. Our experiences are essential to understanding the reform that's needed. She is a passionate advocate of early release. Jail facilities typically hold people who have been arrested and have been charged with a crime but are presumed innocent, but the majority of people are eligible for bail and can return to the community, but they are too poor to pay their bail. So nobody should sit in jail just because they're poor, and especially when there is a pandemic going on. We just look at it's just looking grim. It's only a matter of time before we all get it. There is an added touch of desperation to calls coming out of jails and prisons. We just in here, look. Around the country these days. Guys are coughing, and there's just no way to escape it, bro, so... You know, if this is the last one you see me in, bro, know that I love you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, not to sound like that, but it's real. Confinement and social distancing are mostly incompatible. Inside of a cell, you have to basically figure out how are you going to adjust because a few feet down from you is uh, another person. Erlon Woods is out of prison now, but a couple of years back, he was my guide to prison life at San Quentin, outside San Francisco. You don't have a hell of a lot of room in there, no, you do don't. You, you can only, it's like one person can only move at a time. Like if I'm, this is, we had to turn sideways. <laughs> when I say that small space, as you know, you was in there, it's about the size of an average person's bathroom. So that's what, that's what that confinement is. Adnan Khan is also happy to describe himself these days as an ex-con. Arlan and I were in San Quentin together. The floor that we lived on, we shared up with 100 people, and that floor was three feet wide. So it is physically impossible to do six-foot distancing in a three-foot wide tier. So what happens when inmates get sick? When viruses hit, the culture of prisons, at least in my experience, has been punitive meaning that when someone gets sick, they get punished by being sent to solitary confinement. That, at least, was the case at San Quentin. When Erlon Woods was an inmate there, he hosted, and still hosts, a podcast called Ear Hustle. 
he did an episode on solitary. It's the hole, the box, the dungeon. I saw no future. How do I spend the next 20, 30 till I die in this cell? Because I was, I wasn't prepared for it. Once you get sent to solitary confinement, the rules and regulations that apply in there, whether you're there for disciplinary reasons or whether you're there for uh, quarantine purposes, those rules and regulations apply to you no matter what you're there for. One controversial option, the early release of elderly inmates and those convicted of nonviolent crimes. Anybody that doesn't have to be in prison, is not being sent to prison, anybody who is um, nonviolent or ready to be released is out. In Florida last week, 164 inmates were released to stop the spread of coronavirus. The troubling exception that will only solidify existing resistance to early release. The day after this announcement, deputies say Joseph Williams killed a man in Tampa. I am issuing an executive order to stop the release of dangerous felons from prisons and jails in Texas. We may, in ordinary times, have the luxury of ignoring what happens behind prison walls. But, says Piper Kerman, not now. Prisons and jails do not have ICUs. They don't have intensive care units. They don't have any of the medical facilities to deal with very sick people. So every single day on a normal day, on a good day, thousands of prisoners are brought out of prison to local hospitals. Overall, remember, the number of inmates and staff testing positive in New York City's prisons and jails is now over a 1,000. One might reasonably assume that the majority of that number are inmates. They're not. Of those testing positive for COVID-19, Department of Corrections staff outnumber inmates almost exactly two to one. It's impossible that staff will not become infected and that their own families and their own communities are not going to experience the spread of coronavirus outside of prisons and jails because an outbreak behind bars is going to spread to the outside community. And a footnote. The Florida Department of Corrections announced that it is lowering the minimum age to be a corrections officer. And just last week announced $1,000 bonuses for new recruits. This pandemic is forcing many of us to confront the pain of sudden and unimaginable personal loss. Here with Reflections, Jason Rosenthal, author of the new book, My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. I was married to an amazing woman for 26 years, Amy Krauss Rosenthal. She was a prolific author and memoirist. She also wrote a modern love column for the New York Times that went crazy viral. It was called You May Want to Marry My Husband and was a creative play on a personal ad for me. Ten days later, Amy died of ovarian cancer. There I was, devastated with grief and undeniably alone. I imagine many of you are feeling that way in the face of this global pandemic. Anything can trigger the feeling. A while back when I went to my doctor's office for an annual checkup, I was asked if the information contained in my medical file was still accurate, things like emergency contact, and marital status. It was such a routine exercise, but it overwhelmed me with the sheer sadness of everything hiding beneath the surface and the reality that I was alone now. But Amy wanted me to fill that blank space, now part of my life. She wanted me to find joyful moments, seek meaning in this complex life we live in, and discover love with someone else. It took me years to come to that realization. I learned that grief has no timetable. Through this current crisis, you may suffer extreme hardship as a result of many losses in your life. From your normal routines to the pain of having someone close to you gravely ill or gone forever. Then you might feel okay for a while and slip back into anxiety. That's okay. That's normal. After my loss, many people reached out to me with their own stories, and I came to an epiphany of sorts that I'm reminded of today. That loss is loss is loss. Unique to each one of us, yet a shared story for us all. We shine brightest 
when we need each other. I'm managing now because so many stepped up to guide me. As you are isolated, feeling a sense of tremendous loss and grief, know that those are normal feelings as we manage this crisis. We can be alone, together. Pay no attention to that expert speaking on camera during a TV interview from home. Moraka has what can only be described as a background report. What is that on the wall? What's your musical instrument? I'm getting a background check from writer and fashion commentator Simon Doonan and designer Jonathan Adler. That is the trumpet that my father took up late in life and was one of the loves of his life. It is my most prized possession. With so many of us sheltering in place, the places where we shelter have become objects of fascination. This world that we're living in now, where we're constantly on view, FaceTime, Zoom calls, has turned everyone into an obsessive art director. With a view of public figures in their private spaces, here's the ordinarily flamboyant Lady Gaga. We're in my office. She's very conservative looking. This is Gaga running the HR department. I like it. (laughs) Daily show host Trevor Noah. These are actually... African heritage domes. He has really nailed it. And on the right side, we see that he won some sort of award, which gives him an award-winning presence. (laughs) Journalist Cynthia McFadden. It's very well composed in a way that sort of creates serenity and looks very chic and appealing. Thank you! And Senator Bernie Sanders. I would hope that no matter what your political view is. I appreciate that he has the chess set, which says, I'm a strategic thinker, which is important. Some stars don't need any background at all. You can send somebody a virtual hug. Only a real international global icon can do this kind of level of simplicity. Well, play. This is our Jim Gaffigan. And I have to tell you right away... I love his chandeliers. I've never seen so many chandeliers. (laughs) It adds a little unexpected burst of glamour to Jim Gaffigan. Be safe, everyone. We're going to get through this. Seeing the couch they have could be the most interesting information that you learn today that's not horrifying. Amanda Hess is a critic at large for the New York Times. She says focusing on the scenery can be a welcome distraction. There's something soothing about meditating on the pattern of Reese Witherspoon's chair. Yes. (laughs) Even though it couldn't be less important. But that's part of what makes it so nice. Of course, public figures are used to being public. But what about everybody else? What we're divulging by letting people see us in our home environments, I don't know, I wonder if we're going to regret this. It's certainly possible, but I've found that, you know, when I get on a Zoom chat with my colleagues, I'm looking at their surroundings and I'm certainly interested, but I don't think I'm judgmental because for the most part, somebody else is is looking at your apartment too. So it's this mutual experience. Mutual, but not always equal. Students suddenly having to take classes online and seeing each other's home environments are learning about their own class differences. It has revealed these uh, divides and and also probably connections between people that um, may never have been revealed otherwise. Of course, the era of revealing ourselves via video chat I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift predates the COVID-19 crisis. Remember Professor Robert Kelly? You may know him better as BBC Dad. At the time, you know, it was this, like, sensational viral thing, and now it's just normal. Now we're all BBC Dad. (laughs) We are all BBC Dad now. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hanks! After all, we're living in an era when Tom Hanks hosted Saturday Night Live from his kitchen. That is some sound effect of applause. Somebody told me that they think that a lot of big Hollywood stars are using their kitchens because there's a little bit of a democratizing effect at work. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I do. I think that's actually a great point. Like, we all have kitchens, and yeah, you don't look around and see the sort of Jim Gaffigan level of chandeliers and glamour. Um, You know, it humanizes Tom Hanks. Jim Gaffigan's the one who really misplayed it by showing that he basically lives in Versailles. 
I hear another commentary being written right now. Like the rest of us sheltering at home right now, our Jim Gaffigan has almost lost track of time, not to mention his sanity. Five weeks. Five weeks in quarantine with my wife and five children in our New York City apartment, and I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Did you hear an echo? I'm not crazy. 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 But I'm getting there. Every morning I wake up, it feels like that scene in the movie Groundhog Day. Except, unlike Bill Murray's character, it's not Groundhog Day. For me, it's January 1st. Who does that? After a New Year's Eve party that I wasn't invited to. Now come over here. Look at this. Every morning, as I walk out to greet my true friend, the coffee maker, I see the remnants of some phantom party. Who does that? Who would do that? A can, a wrapper, some crumbs strategically placed to invite mice or bugs. That's wrong. That's mean. Was it you? No. It's my children. They're vandals. They're doing it on purpose to torture me. That's the garbage. That's the juice box. Garbage, juice box. You just have a can. In your bed. Why would you think that would be okay? Um, I don't know. I was going to throw it away. They destroyed an antique chair. They didn't break it. They destroyed it. It's my boys. They're savages. <laughs> my wife and I have tried. We've tried to civilize them. We, we tell them how to sit, how to eat. How to comb your hair. Now, when's the last time you guys combed your hair? That was a pretty yesterday. We comb their hair for them. Yet they still look like this. This is your hair, right? I should go. I can hear them. Planning their next mess. I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. Now I'm talking to my phone, my, my phone. Hang in there, everyone. The new television series, Mrs. America, tells the story of the years-long battle over the proposed Equal Rights Amendment. This morning, members of its cast are in conversation with Aaron Moriarty. <laughs> The battle for the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, has been waged for nearly a century. And in January, before COVID-19 brought the country to a halt, many saw signs the battle was finally coming to an end. Virginia is on the brink of becoming the 38th state to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. But the country has been here before. A passage of the Equal Rights Amendment is the single most important piece of unfinished business. Mrs. America a limited TV series, takes a look back at the 1970s. Yesterday, the Equal Rights Amendment sailed through the Senate. When the ERA almost became a reality. They say that women are like tea bags. You don't know their strength until they get into hot water. I think the only reason to delve back into history is to understand where we are today. Kate Blanchett produces and is one of the stars of Mrs. America. We spoke with her and other members of the cast earlier this year. It was literally like Groundhog Day. Same-sex bathrooms and women in the military and the draft and, and all of these things are all coming up now, even the Equal Rights Amendment itself. We will get it ratified next year. You just got lucky. The ERA was passed by Congress in 1972, but three-quarters of the states had to ratify it to make it law. That seemed all but certain, with feminists like Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug, and Shirley Chisholm behind it. 
until they ran into another woman just as passionately opposed to it, Phyllis Schlafly. The women's liberation movement is basically a very negative attitude toward life. A threat to the traditional American family. A threat that Blanchett plays Schlafly in the series. The series really does break apart this notion that all women think the same. Phyllis Schlafly was a conservative Illinois lawyer who founded the Stop ERA campaign. I think that she felt that the virtuous woman was was the cornerstone of society. So if we start leaving the family, then the whole fabric of America is going to collapse. This is a complicated thing. Rose Byrne plays Gloria Steinem. People are always trying to divide up women. One of the most recognizable leaders of the pro-ERA movement. And these right-wing religious forces in this country are the people we founded this country to escape. Both Steinem and Schlafly grew up in the Midwest, and Byrne says they had more in common than Schlafly would admit. She would travel all over the country, leaving her family with help, leaving her children, fighting for this thing. That's the dirty secret about Bill Schlafly, is that she's the biggest feminist of all of them, really. I would like to uh, thank my husband, Fred, for letting me come today. I love to say that because it irritates the women's livers more than anything that I say. She was a politician. Mm -hmm. And she knew what she could get done. Margot Martindale says Schlafly was shrewd. She referred to herself as feminine rather than feminist and played the game as well as her opponents. I found that fascinating about her. Smart as a whip, but every one of these women are smart as a whip. Because I would go about it in the right way. Martindale plays Congresswoman Bella Abzug. I am trying to protect our interests. She was loud, she was outspoken, she was an activist from the moment she came out of her mama's womb. Tracy Ullman, the best-selling feminist author, Betty Friedan. She had a fantastic education and then she felt stifled by being a mother with three small children and no opportunity to be in the workplace. Perhaps the Democrats in this room could refrain from trashing the president at every meeting. Elizabeth Banks is the lesser-known but powerful Republican feminist Joe Ruckelshaus. The movement was bipartisan back then, and, yeah. and equal rights and human rights should be bipartisan. Of course, that's the goal of it. I didn't get anywhere in my life waiting on somebody's permission. Uzo Aduba plays Shirley Chisholm, congresswoman and first African-American woman to run for president. I knew her as an African-American hero, African-American female hero. Apparently the Black Caucus believes that you're going to drop out of the race. Is that true? Everybody has been hoping and waiting for me to drop out ever since I started seven and a half months ago. The battle lines were drawn between those who welcomed the ERA as an opportunity and others who saw it as a threat. Oh, I should have brought another skirt. Sarah Paulson plays a composite character called Alice, who was a follower of Schlafly's and a member of Stop ERA. You know, she couldn't look around and see anyone, any woman, that sort of confirmed that she had value based on what she wanted, which was not to be in the working environment, but to be working in her home and taking care of her children. Get the Constitution equally applied. The series includes some of the memorable skirmishes. Harvard Law School barred women until fa you know, fairly recently. The name on the Today bar. As in this uncomfortable TV appearance with Betty Friedan. I could name, a, I could name well, 30, 40, Don't name 30, just name one. Uh, the you can't name one. Rose Byrne says Steinem herself seemed determined to avoid these spectacles. And that was smart. You know, she didn't want to give her any more airtime than she was already having. But in the end, Schlafly and her stop ERA did exactly that. In the early 80s, after activists failed to get enough states to ratify the amendment, the movement stalled and disappeared from headlines. Until recently, when women's marches and Me Too seemed to breathe new life into it. America wants this. Over 90% of everyone says women should have constitutional equality. Carol Jenkins is co-founder and CEO of the ERA Coalition. It's just a matter of time before women and girls have equality in, in the playbook that we all live by in this country, our Constitution. But in fact, the issue is as unsettled as ever. Opponents argue that the January vote in Virginia to ratify the ERA came too late, well after a deadline set by Congress. We need to demand equality. And so 
the fight continues, now in the courts. Uzo Aduba hopes that a series like Mrs. America, that provides a look back, can help Americans find a way forward. I think we have the unique opportunity now to correct as we progress towards hopefully a resolution of some kind, a bringing together of some kind. We all could use a timeout this weekend. Here's ours from Steve Hartman. We begin today with an alarming new milestone. As the misery spreads, spreading spreading quickly, most of us are relieved to be watching the worst of it from the safety of our sofas. 47-year-old Bevan Strickland of High Point, North Carolina, was one of those comfortably on the couch. But some switch flipped in you. Yeah, it was kind of a switch. That's funny that you say that because I was like, wait a minute, why am I sitting here? Bevan, a nurse, had just contracted a serious case of empathy. I can imagine the nurses being so exhausted, so stressed out. If I can just go and relieve a shift for them. Totally crazy right now. That was a month ago. And today, Bevan is working at Mount Sinai, Queens, the epicenter of the outbreak in New York City. She cares for the sickest patients under the most demanding conditions, solely because she believes she was made for a moment like this. Uh, I'm not afraid. I'm not easily uh, shaken by things. I was in a bank robbery. I was held at gunpoint. I was tied up for 15 minutes. Um, He was tying me up, and I said, I said, are we on candid camera? And, you know, I wanted to make him laugh. I figured I'll make myself human to him, and then he won't want to kill me. It was at that point that I realized this was no ordinary hero. Then I learned that although she's not technically a volunteer, she has to get paid for legal reasons, Bevan plans to donate everything she makes after expenses to the Mount Sinai support staff. And the fact is, she could really use the money. She has student loans, and she's a single mom with twin 16-year-old boys back home. Cheers, man. Did she ask you if she could do this, or did she tell you she was doing it? She says multiple times, even mm-hmm. after saying yes, she's yeah. like, are you sure you want me to? And Why did you say yes? This life is, life is not to just serve yourself, but to serve others. These apples didn't fall far. I believe it's our duty. I believe we should be compelled to do something when we can. There's a switch that goes off in some people during perilous times. Whether it's the football coach who steps in to stop a school shooter, the NFL player who joins the Army after 9-11, or the nurse who simply stands up from her couch. There will always be those who run toward disaster when everyone else is fleeing. Somebody's got to help. What if we all said we couldn't handle it and we couldn't do it? You know, what if everybody said that? It certainly wouldn't be America. Painters often take moments in history and capture them on canvas. And our current crisis is no exception. The paint is barely dry on one work our Lee Cowan is about to show us. I think what's in in my head is the idea or the feeling that I want it to have. It has to have an emotion. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what makes art, art. I wish somebody would come at ease Kadir Nelson has been emoting one brushstroke at a time for decades. Perhaps you've seen his work on the cover of The New Yorker. Or in children's books. He's a celebrated illustrator, too. But his work also hangs in galleries and museums. Collectors eagerly seek him out. But what he does best is perhaps what we need most of all right now. The strength of the human spirit celebrated. I think it's a crucial moment, and I need to have a voice and create an image that will give people hope. I call the painting After the Storm. After the Storm? After the Storm. All these people, all these figures in the painting, they have their eye on a common goal. They all have their eyes trained on the light. It was still a work in progress when we visited Nelson's Los Angeles studio earlier this month, at a healthy social distance, of course. But even in its earliest stages, its message was pretty clear. I think one of the things that we are probably missing a lot of people are missing now is human touch yeah 
um, because we have to stay so far uh, away from one another. <laughs> like we are. You know. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure to emphasize that that is part of being a human being is touch. Is, uh, is, yeah, it's human touch. Little hands holding big, old hands clasping young. The painting will tell me what it needs, what it wants. Um, it really speaks to you that way. Yeah, so it's like it's a conversation. Nelson started having that conversation with crayons when he was just a boy. One drawing in particular. It was the Incredible Hulk beating up the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is, a, this is a narrative painting. I didn't realize that's what it was, but... Uh, I've always really found joy in telling stories with my work. And those stories have gotten noticed just this year. His illustrations for the book, The Undefeated, garnered him not only the Coretta Scott King Book Award, but also the coveted 2020 Caldecott Medal. This was the year that I was given the, the, you know, the biggest prize in children's literature. It's the Oscar, right? It is, it's, it is. But the threat of COVID canceled the Caldecott ceremony. It's got to be disappointing, though. It was a, it was a bit disappointing. I, I expected it. He spent years painting his passion, the heroes from Negro League Baseball. He was going to help celebrate their centennial this year, but COVID struck that out, too. But I totally understand. Um, I think we, it, it takes a backseat to all of, of what we're experiencing. You know, that's just, that's just where we are at the moment. So he spent this uncomfortable moment painting the better moment to come. He finished after the storm this past week. This is the first time anyone's ever seen it. Most of what he'll get from its sale and the prints that follow, he intends to give to COVID-19 relief efforts. No small donation. We are all human beings. We are all part of the human family, and we are all experiencing this together. Kadir Nelson used his talent to seize on the global stillness and created an image that somehow screams unity in the quietest of ways. I would challenge everyone and anyone to fill their days with creating something that's going to help themselves get to the next moment, to the next hour, to the next day, to the next week, so that by the end of this experience. We've, we've created this beautiful document that shows where we've been, who we are, and how we're going to move forward. I'm Jane Pauley. Please stay safe and join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs>